0: Good evening. evening. As always, I love you and I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful that you take time out of your week to be with your church family and to talk about some very important things um, and some challenging, sensitive things. Uh, we're we're moving, believe it or not, into more and more sensitive areas as we as we continue through this series. Uh, we've started this series. We're about halfway through now. We're going to take a break next week, but uh, we're about halfway through the series, and we've really started with the ideal, the ideal of. Christian marriage the ideal of sexuality what sex is supposed to be what God intends for it to be what marriage is intended to be I just kind of wanted to review as we start tonight just wanted to review the lessons that we've done Um, the first one was finding true love in God we talked about how it's God's love around which we must orient our lives And if we don't orient our lives around the love of God, then everything in our lives becomes disordered, right? Our life becomes chaotic and disordered if the love of God is not our true north. If we don't worship him, then we will worship something else. Number two... We talked about the body, the soul, and the spirit, and we talked specifically about the fact that Christian sexuality is not just a list of rules, what to do and what not to do. It's a unique view, a unique view that we get from Jesus and the apostles and from the scriptures about what it means to be human, what the human body is what God intends for the human body, how God redeems the human body, how God will resurrect the human body, all of that pertains to and shapes our thinking as it pertains to sexuality. Number three, identity and authenticity. We talked about the fact that our, our view of self, our view of self might be very unique in our culture today and and we have to maintain this unique view of self a view of self that says i'm not the main character in my story i am a supporting character in a story about jesus rather than the main character in a story about me and my life revolves around him my identity revolves around him and the authenticity that we're striving for is not to is not to necessarily express the inner self or the true self, but to become a new self, to die to self and to become the new self and put on the new self. We talked about number four, the fact that God created sex, that sex is good and God created it for good purposes. Number five, we talked about Christian singleness um, I talked to a guy today, actually, I talked to a minister today that has been uh, working in churches for, he, I think he said over 50 years, and he just happened to tune in to our Wednesday night Bible study uh, that night that we were talking about singleness, and he said that was the only time that he had ever heard in 50 years in the church anybody talk about singleness and the importance of singleness, which is interesting, isn't it, when when Paul and Jesus both are very explicit about how it can be a good choice for someone to choose to be celibate, and especially in that culture, that was something that was frowned upon. At times it was even, we didn't talk about this, at times it was even legally penalized to be celibate, to not be married, to, not, to choose not to have children. And, and Jesus and Paul both were single men and encouraged followers of Jesus, to be, to choose celibacy, to choose singleness for certain purposes, for the kingdom of God, and, and how we continue to need to express that that can be a very good choice. And then, of course, we talked about Christian marriage. And what it means, what marriage is, what it's about, what's the purpose of marriage? That for us, marriage is about more. It should be about more than just our own personal happiness and fulfillment of finding our soulmate and our true love. For us, marriage should be so, something so much more than that. In fact, here's how we put it last week for intentions. Four purposes for Christian marriage. Number one, to model the self-giving love of Christ and the church. That Paul says the mystery, the mystery of Genesis 2.24, the mystery of marriage is that marriage between a man and a woman is actually supposed to point to something bigger than themselves. The marriage relationship is supposed to point to the relationship of Jesus and the church. It isn't that Jesus and the church is just a model for us to say, okay, so that's what my marriage is supposed to look like. I'm going to follow that example. That's part of it. But more than that, it's that our marriages are supposed to display this, are supposed to showcase that self-giving love of Christ and the church in our marriages. Number two, that Marriage is supposed to reflect God's creational intent for lifelong, monogamous, male-female, one-flesh covenant relationships. We will talk again about Genesis 2.24, but that's God's creational intent, and marriage is supposed to reflect that. Number three, to help prevent sin by mutually satisfying one another's sexual impulses. Scripture is, is... not unaware of the fact that our sexual impulses our sexual drive is a powerful force and that if people are not allowed to get married then they will inevitably commit sexual sin and so in order to prevent sexual sin it is good for a man to be married is good for husbands and wives to come together and for them to satisfy one another's sexual impulses number four to create a godly home where children can be brought into the world and taught to follow Jesus. Okay, so as we think about all of those things, we we realize and recognize that this lists like this, things like this that we find in scripture, they might be even different than the way we, we tend to think about marriage and what the purpose of marriage is. Because we have sort of Drank the water that everyone else is drinking. We've breathed the air that everyone else is breathing. And we live in this hyper romanticized and hyper individualistic world where we think it's all about finding true love, being happy, having our needs and wants satisfied. But Jesus calls us into something bigger. Now, that being said, All of this has sort of been the ideal, right? We've been talking about the ideal. And the truth is, life is very rarely ideal. And we haven't spent a lot of time yet talking about the fact that life is very rarely ideal. I was thinking how many of these stories I should tell, but I think it's important for us to recognize that even as Christians, life is rarely ideal. I was thinking about over the last, I don't know, three or four years, preacher friends, close preacher friends, one preacher friend who was unfaithful to his wife on multiple occasions with multiple women, and his wife found out about it, divorced him, left him. It's nearly killed him, honestly. It's nearly killed him. He doesn't blame her for divorcing him. He understands why she divorced him, but he desperately wants reconciliation. And to this moment, to this moment, that's what he prays for above all else. He's he's ministering, he's he's preaching, um, he's preaching as a single man, but he desperately wants to be reconciled uh, with his wife. Another preacher friend, very close friend, whose wife was unfaithful to him, who committed adultery with someone at church and he divorced her, and now he's remarried, and he's, he's happy, and, and things are going well. So many, I, I won't go into any more stories, but, but so many preacher friends, and so many Christian friends, and so many of us in this room, I, I imagine every single one of our lives has been touched by divorce, hasn't it? Every one of our lives has been touched by divorce. So on the one hand, we can acknowledge all of these things, we can affirm all of these things and say, this is what, this is what marriage is supposed to be, this is what marriage is, this is what God designed it for, for it to be, this is what it's supposed to be. But then at the very same time, we can say, ah, but so often it's not that, it's not ideal, it's not even, even those marriages that, that continue and persevere, it's not always that, is it? It's not always that you're not always that. You don't always live up to that standard. Even if we can acknowledge and we can say, yes, yes, this is what scripture says. This is the life Jesus calls us to. We also have to acknowledge at the very same time that life is very rarely ideal. So we have Genesis 2.24. This is our our primary text as Christians, as believers, this shapes our thinking. It, it was the text Jesus goes back to about marriage. It's the text Paul goes back to. Peter even goes back to the creation when he talks about gender and sexuality. Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, ish and isha, man and woman, we talked about last week, and they shall become one flesh. That's the ideal. That's the ideal of marriage. That's what marriage is supposed to be. That's what God intends for it to be. And so regardless of anything else, we have to be able to say that, that this is what marriage is supposed to be. Marriage is supposed to bring glory to God. Marriage is supposed to model and display the self-giving love of Jesus and the church of God and his people. Marriage is supposed to reflect God's creational intent that we see right here. But scripture also makes makes allowance for, and acknowledges the reality that marriage is very rarely, if ever, ideal. We see this all throughout even the Hebrew scriptures, the, what we call the Old Testament. Look at Exodus chapter 21 and verse 7. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 7. I mean, so much of the law, that, that's why there has to be law, right? There has to be law because people are not ideal. People, people don't do what they're supposed to do. If everyone did what they were supposed to do, then, then there wouldn't really need to be any law. But there has to be law when people don't do what they're supposed to do. And so we find laws like this. Here's Exodus 21, verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, I mean, let's just stop right there. I mean, that right there, obviously, things are not ideal when a man has to sell his daughter as a slave because he's become so impoverished that this is, this is the only option, this is what it's come to, that he has to sell his daughter as a slave. If he has to do this, the law says, then she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed, purchased back. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So again, these laws are there to protect and to prevent the situation from becoming even worse than it already is verse 9 if he designates her for his son so so this is a a slave woman a, a servant an indentured servant who has been sold into slavery in this case specifically because her father has become impoverished and sold her into slavery and now this slave is being designated to the master's son and if that happens he shall deal with her as with a daughter that he is supposed to deal with her as a daughter. And if he takes another wife to himself, so if, if the man is married to this slave woman, and then he takes another wife, a second wife, to himself, then he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money." Now, this is a really interesting scenario. It's one we don't talk a whole lot about. Um, Dr. David Instone Brewer has said that those the, this phrasing from Exodus chapter 21 was found in all of the ancient Israelite, ancient Jewish um, marriage certificates. This idea of food, clothing, and marital rights. And so the idea here is that if a man has a, a slave wife, And then he marries a free wife, and then he decides, "Uh, you know what, I I don't like you anymore, my first wife, I, I don't need to take care of you anymore, and he doesn't feed her, and he doesn't clothe her, and he doesn't have sexual relations with her, give her conjugal rights. If he doesn't do those things, then she is free to leave. She can leave him because he is not fulfilling his obligations to her. And again, it, it's pretty easy to see why this law is in place, right? It's in place for her protection, to make sure that if this man takes another wife, which again is not ideal, is not what Genesis 2.24 lays out. It doesn't say when the three, or when the one and the one and the other one, it, it says when the two, when they, the Ish and the Isha, the man and the woman, the man and his wife, when they are together, they become one flesh. The two become one flesh. So it's not ideal for him to be taking another wife. This was not God's intention. And if he does that, there's a good chance that he's gonna favor one over the other. And there's a chance that he's gonna be abusive. There's a chance that he's going to neglect the slave wife. And he's not gonna give her the food and the clothing and the love that she is due, that are her rights. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? In fact, the rabbis apparently would take this idea and say, well, if, if that's true, if, if the slave wife has the right to food and clothing and love from her spouse, then surely that's also true of a free wife, that if a man is neglecting and abusing his wife and not giving her nourishment, and cherishing, and love, if he's not giving her food and clothing and marital rights, then surely the free wife could also walk away. She could also divorce her husband. And then the rabbis would say, well, if that's also true, if, if that could happen with the slave wife and it could happen with a free wife, then surely it could happen with a husband. And so this is the obligation that when you enter into marriage, you are vowing, making a covenant. I will nourish you. I will cherish you, I will love you, I will feed you, I will clothe you, I will put shelter over you, and I will continue to give you marital rights. In fact, when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul talks about what marriage, what you're supposed to do in marriage, it's the same kind of things, isn't it? Or when Paul talks about marriage between a husband and wife and compares that with Jesus and the church in Ephesians 5, talks about you love your spouse, your wife, like your own body. You nourish, that means feed. You cherish, you protect, that means clothe. And, and you give love to, right? This is, this is the way that it's supposed to work in marriage. And when you make a covenant with someone, you are, you are vowing, I will, I will feed you. And I will, I will clothe you. And I will share my body with you for the rest of our lives. And if you don't do that, then you are breaking your covenant with them. And in this text, the text says that that person can walk away from that marriage. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, a little bit more well-known passage on divorce in the Torah, in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, this is a law, This is a long sentence. I couldn't even, I wanted to put it on one screen, but I couldn't even put it on one slide. This is a long sentence. So it's a, a situation. Imagine, picture the situation in your head. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, dot, 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 hold, hold on, we'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll, let me stay on the first one for just a second. Notice, notice the idea of some and indecency, okay, some indecency, we'll, we'll come back to that idea in a second, but yes, now, now let's go on, verse three, and the latter man, this is the second husband, hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Okay, did you get all that? That's one sentence in English. This is one scenario, right? One scenario. And again, this is setting this up because it's, it's introducing the idea or acknowledging the idea, the idea that we're all aware of. Marriage is supposed to be this beautiful, wonderful thing. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. And in those kinds of situations, people act in ungodly ways so many times. And so the law was there to help to to mitigate some of that. To help the situation not be as bad as it could be. And so here, this scenario is laid out like this. If a man finds some indecency in his wife... And then he divorces her. He writes her a certificate of divorce. He sends her away. The certificate said she could marry some other man. And then she did. She married some other man. And she was that person's, she was that man's wife. And then that man either divorces her or, or he dies. Then the, sec, the first man can't come back and remarry her. That, that's what the, the situation lays out. That he can't remarry her. Well, Why? The text says that it would be an abomination before the Lord. And then the last sentence, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Maybe it was so that men didn't pimp out their wives, rent out their wives. This is something that happened in the ancient world that probably still happens today, where you marry her for a little while and then I'll take her back. And... And God says this kind of thing cannot cannot happen. So so for whatever reason, the law says that if you divorced your wife and she married someone else, then after she's married that second person, you cannot, the first man cannot buy her back or, or marry her again. Now, that obviously is put there for protection of someone and probably for the woman, but Going back, in fact, let's go back to that first slide, verses 1 and 2, and let's look at that idea of some indecency. Now, there were two schools of thought. The, the rabbis sort of thought about this, this idea a little bit differently. There was the, the, the house of Hillel. One rabbi said, uh, well, some some, and indecency. It could just say indecency. It could just say he found indecency in her, but it says some or any 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 indecency, so so maybe it could be for any cause, and so those who followed that line of thinking said, "Oh well, it's just any cause. There's any cause, and then there's indecency cause. So you could divorce her because of indecency, but you could also divorce her for any reason." Th- then there was the the house of Shammai who said, "Oh no no, it's it's." any indecency. The, the idea is indecency. It's it's immorality. It's adultery. She's committed adultery. And so Shammai was much more conservative and said, no, 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 this is, this is only for adultery. And Hillel and those that followed him, which was the majority at the time of Jesus, said, oh, no, no, it's, it's anything. And so a man could divorce his wife for any cause, any cause. It was these were very common in the time of Jesus. So that if a woman burned her husband's dinner, he could say, okay, that's it. I found some indecency in you. I've, I've found any cause to divorce you. And so the, the divorce would, would happen on, those, on, those, on that basis. Now, let's kind of move and think about how Jesus deals with the world that he steps into. A world where he's calling people to the ideal The ideal for marriage, the ideal for being human, the ideal for being God's people, but also acknowledging that life and people and marriages are broken. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 and understand that Jesus never taught anyone to violate the law of Moses. He didn't change the law of Moses. He didn't contradict the law of Moses. He fulfilled it And he explained it. Look at Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is how Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Just so everybody is clear, when Jesus speaks, when Jesus teaches, he does not violate the law of Moses. He does not contradict the law of Moses. He does not change the law of Moses. Jesus is God. We we agree on that, right? Jesus is God. Therefore, the law came from Jesus. He's not against the law. The law was there for a purpose, and Jesus didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it, to explain it, to show the people how so many of them weren't even really keeping the law of Moses. Those that gave a lot of lip service to the law weren't actually keeping the law. And and here we see he says that your righteousness should exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Your righteousness, meaning your justice. The teachings of Jesus not only will never violate the law of Moses, but I think we have to be really careful that we don't interpret Jesus so that he is less just than the law was. Jesus will never be less just than the law was. So now, with that in mind, look at Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. Kind of put all of that together. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, right? So they're asking about the Hillel interpretation, right? They're saying, okay, this any cause divorce, which by that time was very popular, it was, it was very mainstream. So many people had accepted this as just the way that that God intended it for men to be able to divorce their wife for any cause. And now the Pharisees, they've got a way to trap Jesus. And they've come up to him and they say, okay, so tell us, what do you think about this any cause divorce? Is it right? Is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? Are these any cause divorces, are they lawful? If a man divorces his wife because she burned dinner and that's the cause, then is he, is he justified in doing that? Now, of course, the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And he answered, verse four, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So where does Jesus take them? back to, not to Exodus 21, not to Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't take them to the texts about divorce. He takes them to the ideal. He takes them back to Genesis two twenty four. He says, this is what God intended. You want to know what's biblical? You know what, want to know what's right? You want to know what's lawful? You're asking me about what's lawful. Let me tell you what's lawful. Here's what God intended. God intended for one man and one woman To come together and for him to join them together, for them to be one flesh and for them not to separate that one flesh union. That's what God intended. God intended for them not to be divorced. God intended for it to be permanent. God intended for you not to divorce your spouse. Again, they want to know, okay, on what grounds? And can I do this? And am I justified? And what cause? And Jesus says, no, this this was not God's intention. This is not what God desires of you. And again, think about just, not just this subject, but so many things that the Pharisees were doing in the days of Jesus. Patting themselves on the back for keeping the law in a way that totally disregarded the heart of the law, totally disregarded why did God put these rules in place in the first place? Why why did these rules exist But they were using them, they were twisting them, they were distorting them so that they could do injustice to their wife. The laws existed for them to treat their wife in a just way, in a just way. But they were using it as an excuse to divorce them and to go do what they wanted and be with someone else. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Going back to, Genesis 20, or to, to Deuteronomy chapter 24. They're, they're going back to the, the text that they're really asking about, right? Now, now we read that text together. We saw what, what the situation was and what Moses was saying, what the text was saying. But they want to know, okay, well, if, if that's right, if it's all Genesis 2.24, if it's all one man, one woman for life, and it's supposed to be permanent, and they're not supposed to get divorced, and, and there's not supposed to be divorce this one, move on to the next one, if that's not the way that it is, then why does the law, why does the law say give her a certificate of divorce? Now, of course, they're saying that Moses commanded it. Jesus is going to kind of soften that. It's more like Moses allowed it, but, but why, why allow it at all? why allow it at all? Why why make allowance for divorce at all? If that's not God's intention, if God doesn't want that to happen, then why why did the law make allowance for it at all? Verse 8, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now it's possible, it's possible that what Jesus is saying is this, this allowance had to be there because you're so hard-hearted, you wouldn't be faithful to your wife. God had to make allowance for divorce. Moses had to make allowance for divorce because of the hardness of you men's hearts. Maybe that's what, what Jesus is saying. But maybe maybe looking back at, at the Old Testament might help us to understand that there might be a little bit more to this reason why there had to be allowance for divorce Because of the hardness of heart of the person who's being unfaithful to the covenant. The the same word in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is used to describe Judah's unfaithfulness to God. Because God had a marriage-like relationship with Israel and with Judah, right? And Judah was unfaithful to God, and Israel was unfaithful to God. They were prostitutes. The text in a second is going to use the word whore. They whored themselves out. They were unfaithful to God over and over and over and over again. And Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 44 says that they are hard-hearted. They're hard-hearted. And sometimes that's, what's hap- that's what happens in a marriage. Sometimes a godly person is married to a hard-hearted spouse and treats them in a way that is hard-hearted. And God made allowance for divorce because of the hard-heartedness of those who are unfaithful. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6. might even surprise you. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6, "...the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel..." How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, will she return to me? But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it and saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went away and played the whore. God divorced Israel because of the hardness of Israel's heart. And sometimes that's what happens in a marriage, isn't it? Sometimes that's what happens in a marriage. That someone is so hard-hearted that their spouse has to divorce them. But notice how God handled this with Israel. It wasn't like Israel messed up once and God said, okay, that's it. She whored herself out. She prostituted herself out over and over and over and over and over again. And here God is saying, and Judah, her sister, sees what Israel has done. And now she's doing the same thing. She's being as hard-hearted as her sister. But what does God do? God perseveres. There comes a point where God has to divorce Israel because of her adultery. But God perseveres. God perseveres because of his steadfast love, because of his mercy, because of his grace. But I I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying, that this is the reason why divorce was necessary, because sometimes even a godly spouse has to do what God did, As, as heartbreaking as that is. Sometimes a godly spouse is married to a hard-hearted person who is determined and stubborn and will not keep their vows, and they are unfaithful to their vows. And here's what Jesus says in verse 9, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, so here he's echoing the position of the house of Shammai, right, the more conservative position, and saying, this any cause divorce thing that y'all are doing? This any cause divorce thing that y'all are doing, and you, you think, oh, she'd burn the dinner. I can, I can leave, and I'll go marry someone else. That, that's, that's wrong. It's never what God intended. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Adultery. These are incredibly strong words, aren't they? Jesus says, listen, you you think you're keeping the law because you wrote her a certificate of divorce and you said, well, any cause, here you go. And you wrote her a certificate of divorce and this is never what God intended. And when you put her away so you can go marry someone else, you're patting yourself on the back like you're keeping the law, but you're breaking the law. This was not the intention of the law. The intention of the law was for you to love one another until death do you part. Yes, there's a time where... Even God had to divorce the hard-hearted one. So yes, there's a time when someone is adulterous and someone is just bent on adultery and being unfaithful. And yes, heartbreakingly so, sometimes divorce has to happen. But this was not God's intention. Now understand, Jesus is not making a new law here, is he? He's not making a new law. He's simply explaining the law. He's explaining, this is what Moses was saying. This is why these things existed. This is the way it's been since the beginning. But again, again, God understands the brokenness into which we we step when we become Christians. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to read verses 10 through 16. I'm, I'm out of time, but I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 through 16 because Paul is now dealing with people that have come out of all kinds of different backgrounds. Because now he's in, a, in the Corinthian church, dealing with Gentile Christians, and, and they come from all different kinds of backgrounds, and some of them are, are believers, and they're married to unbelievers. And what do we do with that? Here's what he says in verse 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. In other words, I'm echoing what Jesus said, I think, in his ministry. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does... She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. And to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, this isn't what Jesus taught, this is Paul going on from there. To the the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. I mean, do you see? Do you see how we kind of have both sides of of that tension? There's the ideal. Here's what you're supposed to do. If your unbelieving spouse will stay with you, stay with them. Because you being with them brings holiness into their life. It brings sanctification into their life. But if they're determined to leave, then they're determined to leave. And and you can't stop that. And you're not bound in that circumstance. We are called to live in peace. Verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I have two other friends, husband and wife. He's he's a minister. They both were unfaithful to their spouse. She was unfaithful, was in a long-term adulterous relationship, left him, divorced him. He was unfaithful to her, kind of in a vindictive way. And then they were reconciled. And now they're happily married and doing well and teaching others Leading others, helping others, blessing others. Because they were willing, they were willing to, to try, to persevere. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This perseverance can bring, can bring healing, can bring salvation. So let me put, put it this way: first, God knows the pain of having to divorce a hard-hearted spouse. God knows that pain. God had to do that. God had to go through a divorce with Israel. So Christians should have an incredible amount of understanding and empathy for those who share this pain, right? Christians should be the most understanding and empathetic people because our God knows what that's like to go through a divorce like that. And secondly, second, as the god of steadfast love, he models perseverance, pardon, and pursuing reconciliation even with a stubborn spouse. So Christians should imitate God's mercy, faithfulness, steadfastness, and forgiveness. It's both. It's both. We have this incredibly high ideal for what marriage is and what it's supposed to be and we pursue it tenaciously even when it doesn't look like what it's supposed to. We strive to be patient and persevere and pursue reconciliation. We strive for that ideal. But then at the same time, we're also understanding and we we do justice because sometimes, sometimes as horrible as divorce is, Sometimes it's what is just to protect innocent people, to protect vulnerable people. And sometimes that's what has to happen, as horrible as that is. And when someone goes through that, Christian people ought to be the most understanding and helpful and sympathetic and empathetic people because we know both the ideal that God has called people to, but we also know the pain and the turmoil that sin reeks on all of our lives, and all of us, including God himself, has been injured by divorce. Let's pray. Father God, none of us have lived up to the ideals. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory, but Father, we want to try. We want to strive. We want better marriages. We want better relationships. We want to be better at showing grace and mercy and love and sympathy. And Father, we want to hold marriage in honor. We want to honor marriage. And we also want to to be there for and love and help those who have gone through divorce. Father, help us to do both. Help us to to show grace and love for people that have been hurt and injured and wounded by by brokenness. And help us, Father, also to, to... revere and to honor the ideal and to strive for that in every area of our life. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love and your forgiveness, but also, Father, thank you for showing us a better way. Help us, Father, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.